to the Bad Vibes Club. So today is the first of three special episodes that um, I'm provisionally calling Matt and Andrea's Summer Book Club. And and it's a conversation with Andrea Frankie, who's a really good friend, but also a wonderful artist. And I've been trying to think of ways to get her on the show and for us to have a conversation, but we kind of, it's almost like I know her too well to just sit down and have an hour discussion in the way that I normally would with guests. Um, so we came up with this format where we've each selected a text to talk about. Andrea selected te- two texts to talk about and I've selected one. And through those things, we're going to talk about Andrea's interests and kind of bring our conversations um, into the public realm. Because normally I just go around hers and she makes a really nice lunch and then we just chat about whatever we've been reading or whatever. But this time we kind of thought we'd formalise it and record it and put it out as a podcast. Andrea brought her lovely son Oscar uh, over. I made some lunch and we had a picnic outside the studio. The text we spoke about today is a book called Invisible Planets, 13 Visions of the Future from China, which is an anthology of contemporary Chinese sci-fi edited and translated by Ken Liu. We talk about three stories in there. We talk about Tong Tong's Summer by Jia Jia. Uh, We talk about Folding Beijing by Hao Xing Fang. And we talk about Taking Care of God by Liu Sishin. We also talk about another book by a Chinese-American sci-fi writer called Ted Chiang which is called The Life Cycle of Software Objects. And, f- and through, talking about these, uh, through talking about these stories, we end up talking about care, we talk about labour, we talk about the future of care and what a kind of care that's done by robots might look like. If you're worried at the moment because you haven't read these stories, which is probably very likely, um, I would say do, they're great. But also just don't worry too much about it. We describe the stories and then we kind of launch off into a discussion of Andrea's ideas around like why it's interesting to write about care in these ways. So I hope you enjoy it. Andrea's a great artist and she has lots of great ideas. Uh, yeah, all right, cheers. One of the things that I found interesting that might pop up in a conversation is that I have been looking at moments of art after the revolution and what sort of art is produced after you. Because we're so used, now that I live in Europe especially, to think about art as this kind of revolutionary mode. You're always pushing for change and then there's this moment of like, okay, so we made change happen and then... <laughs> What the hell? <laughs> and I always, I've always felt like that's kind of the easy part. It's like to bring the revolution is not that hard. Yeah. Um, to think about what happens afterwards is is the problem. And then I think this idea that why has it been so hard, or like why why hasn't why sci-fi and this mode of like utopian thinking has not been so popular in China is really interesting mm. to me. And why does it become popular now? Yeah, when, yeah, when yeah. Like yeah. In a completely different political moment but so what happened was um andrea gave me this book for my birthday which is very kind but she also (laughs) put three bookmarks in on the three stories that she said that we had to have conversations about so it was kind of a self-interested present which i thought was really good um and the three stories were all so they were all about care in some way and i thought that was have you read the rest of the book? Yes. Is there loads of stuff about care or are they particularly... I think they're particularly focused. I think they all have in one way or another uh, things about care. A lot more present than when I've read other sci-fi. Yeah. But I think these three are really interesting because they focus on um, not only care, but very specific types of like un um, examined types of care. So they're talking about elder care in sci-fi, which I... I, I thought was super interesting because in terms of even like 
motherhood, which is something that I find quite invisible, is so much more talked about than mm. caring for old people, in a sense. And Yeah, so the three stories, what, the first one's about the invention or the proliferation of robots that are controlled by humans that care for old people. The second one, the second one is maybe the most standard sci-fi. It reminded me a bit of um, The City in the City by China Mayville. Yes. Where there's these two cities that exist in the same space but in this one it's called the folding city and beijing literally folds over to reveal a kind of first world second world and third world which have like they own or they operate over certain times so first world has a whole day and then they go to sleep and then second world has like 12 hours in the day and then third world appears and has 12 hours just overnight but and then the third one is a crazy crazy story about it's called Taking Care of God and all these, this kind of race of gods comes down to earth and they've like run out of fuel and they don't know how to run their own spaceships anymore. <laughs> so like all these villages get, have to take care of like, each family gets a god. That's it, isn't it? And then it's really, um, like I really enjoyed it for its like strangeness, but it's like really weird idea and kind of unfinished in loads of ways. Like, the families get really annoyed at the gods. The gods are really lazy. They like don't clear up their mess and stuff like that. But then all at the end, it's some kind of test or something, isn't it? To like, I can't, I couldn't quite work out the moral of the story. That's maybe like just to preface this, I'm not that good with sci-fi because I think that I used to read it a lot when I was uh, young, and then I kind of got really disillusioned with it um, for various reasons. And I wonder whether, like, I often just read them as like parables or morality tales about the contemporary world but that's a bit unfair because they're also i guess meant to be like visions of a world that doesn't exist i think to me a lot of sci-fi and i think that's what i i i, I went uh, i used to really like sci-fi and i have i didn't read sci-fi for quite a long time and i'm just getting back into it it's not literary pleasure it's more plot driven pleasure yeah. i guess yeah, yeah yeah and that has been really interesting to move into from texts that are really you know exploring language and all these different things that I feel only text can do, but in a very language level, would I think um, sci-fi has this fun philosophy but not serious way of thinking that is, um, I guess because I'm reading lots of very serious philosophy. Right, okay. It's quite yeah, fun yeah. to see these ways <laughs> of thinking that are, they're not rigorous at all. They're yes, like thought experiments. The thing, isn't and it? I, yeah. I quite enjoy the thought experiment. Like I love the... The God's uh, Story, which that one is by Liu Cixin, who wrote The Three-Body Problem. And uh. I just recognize all of those feelings that these gods came and you know they're responsible for constructing the world you're living in. And you're like, I, we sort of owe them these things, <laughs> but then they're such a pain. Yeah, they're like big babies, aren't they? <laughs> and I think, again, like in terms of care and future and stuff, it's just like you need to face those things. Like, I feel that, you know, um, both my I like my grandparents were um, really big part of my life and they raised me and I loved them and by the end of the, their lives when they were like really sick I would go there because I missed them and I didn't want them to die and at the same time it would just be so fed up because mm. there's like it's really it's a really hard conversation and relationship and there's all these expectations because they raise you and they give you all mm. this stuff. And at the same time, at some point, you're like, you're bored and you're like, you don't listen to me. I don't want to be doing this. And I I love that complication about care, that care is not kind. And it's, I mean, it is kind, but it has all these other 
really complicated feelings. Yeah. Um, There's a good bit in the God uh, story where it's like, um, so the gods come down, they come down on these super advanced spaceships, but they're, they don't know how to operate the spaceships, which for, for a reason that is gone into in the story, but I can't remember it. And so they give all this technology over to the world's government. So it is, there's this reciprocal arrangement at the start where like the gods will be looked after and in return they've given over all this technology. But one by one all these technological innovations fall down either because we don't have the maths to understand it and the gods can't help us or that it just doesn't work at our current stage of evolution or something. Like all these reasons suddenly like it's not a reciprocal arrangement anymore. It's just us caring. Yeah, like you say, like there's no benefit to us caring or like um kind of way that we can understand ourselves as like receiving care in return or something yeah and that's really i think that to me was really interesting this idea that so the way he's defining gods is that there are these beings that sort of look like humans that came here millions and millions ago and they're the ones kind of push that big moment where you know life begins on earth that i guess no one exactly knows you know when you have these chemical things and then they become a cell and they're like, oh, we're the ones who did that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which, is a, which is a pretty big depth to have to yeah. <laughs> the civilization. <laughs> and it's actually them because they live for so long. So it's not even that that's what their ancestors did. So the last book I read that was sci-fi was, is it like Solar- Solaris? The Russian yes. one um, that the films are based on. And that I really enjoyed for this um, deep engagement with like what another form of consciousness might be in the story there's a planet that's basically consciousness and they slowly find out that it's a kind of alive being and it's like gets quite abstract because it's trying to like delve into like what that might be and obviously as humans we don't really have that ability to comprehend that anyway so the whole story is kind of like revolves around like a big void whereas these stories are definitely like they like set up the situation and then just like run with it in different ways like in the folding city thing, they kind of explore the um, the different cities and like what class and kind of societal arrangements they have. And then it's not really much technology, but like when they describe the folding, it's very much just like fun descriptions of things like folding out and neon lights appearing and stuff like that. Like they don't get too wrapped up in the how that, that technology yeah. might work. Because obviously that would be like, too much effort or something but but it did seem to me it was like yeah maybe it's a i just don't know enough about the culture like literary culture there but maybe it's just like they're really enjoying just being this freedom to like write about kind of totally invented situations have you read much other chinese um like novels and fiction and stuff so i went to china a few years ago and then i read some sci-fi then there which was really interesting because the stuff and i guess of course and um Ken Liu talks about a lot of this in his introduction, which I thought was really interesting, which he was like, please do not essentialize this as being, mm. like, this is his selection. So it might be that Ken Liu is really interested in maintenance and care. Yeah, sure, And then yeah, I'm applying yeah. this, you know, I don't want to apply. But, and when I was there, I read this, um, it was like a literary magazine and they had like a special edition. So it was Chinese and then a few of them were translated. And they were all about how technology fails, which I thought was amazing. So it was like these stories and this will happen, but then always some part of the machinery would not be properly made or because this is like done in this cheap factory. So it was always about like this kind of, um, it, it, it never had this dream that technology will function smoothly. It was always about how it 
it, it would always com- fail. Yeah. It will always fail and we will always find ways to kind of like mess it up a tiny bit yeah. and fix it. And, 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 and quite a few times about why it fails. It fails because the, the machinery or this shiny stuff or like cloudy stuff is actually produced by people yes. in like okay. really rough yeah, conditions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that kind of always will backfire, which I thought was... And that was like eight years ago. Yeah. Maybe something like and that. that must be like, again, yeah, not to essentialize, but that must be a cultural knowledge that many Chinese people have that we, lots of Westerners can think about technology as produced in another place. But I guess if you're Chinese and you've, yeah, you kind of know where these, you know where Shenzhen is like in your country. You don't just know that it's roughly the place, this kind of joke place where everything gets made. When I was there, I was looking at a lot of like piracy and also inflation to objects. And it was really interesting to be in a place where I feel when we're here, for example, if you think about an iPad or your iPhone, you kind of think about it as this black box. Mm. But then to be in a context where you, it's really clear that lots of people can make iPhones and you can buy an iPhone that is not by Apple, that is exactly like an iPhone. Okay. And you can also buy an iPhone that someone has combined and put some features on the BlackBerry. <laughs> and like all these things, that, that this object is not a black box. It's yes. just a thing. It doesn't have, I feel like for us here is a bit of, at least for me, it's a oh, bit yeah, magical. Yeah. Like these objects yeah, yeah, are yeah. magical. They're just like these, these kind of boxes that go through some sort of ritual and then they can do all this magic stuff. And yeah, it was really interesting to be in a place that um, people had a completely different relation and it was also not fetishizing uh, or like quite a lot of the people that we talked about with about this they didn't fetishize the like we were fetishizing this as like a do it yourself or like uh, this is so much fun and they were like no if I had money to buy the iPhone I'll buy the iPhone but I don't have it or like they they saw these things in a much it was a very different way to interact with technology and yeah. technology objects. But that's weird, isn't it? Because Apple's entire thing now is to like go to get rid of any kind of peripheral. So their their aim is to get to like a completely shiny glass box that has no like internality or like perceived internal space or something. So it's just surface. But I guess like if you know where they're made and you know the fact. And you've seen knockoff iPhones with like five USB ports or whatever, or extra memory or like sticking out the side, then you already know intuitively that that isn't the case and can never be the case. I think it goes back to this idea of knowledge production and where do I like this text? And I think it's about affect and desire. And like it's quite different to read stories that are written from a desire of living these transparent boxes. I think there's a desire here that we all have that, you know, this these things are actually surface. Mm, yeah, yeah, And yeah. that is a good desire. There's something quite, maybe like even platonic, that we're going to get these platonic objects <laughs> that are like finally ideal. And like this other place that, or like these this texts that are not concerned with those desires, they're yeah. concerned on like how in the future, who's going to be making these things or like, or, and, and that's the, the post-revolution mode that I'm interested in because, and it might be because they had such a violent revolution and it's like, yeah. there is this awareness of like, okay, so we're going to get this super surface objects. So we're going to get um, a world where everybody has spaceships. And it's like, who's going to be maintaining those spaceships? Yeah. Who's cleaning those spaceships? Yeah. 
what happens when you cannot fly in the spaceship anymore because you have, I don't know, a certain disability that doesn't allow you to be there? Or, like, what are the races that are going to be, you know? Which also yeah, yeah, happens yeah. in, like, um, African-American science fiction, which is super interesting as well, which has all these other questions about, um, yeah, who's included in these futures and who's not. Yeah, whereas, like, the, the classic, I mean, this is obviously just another um, simplification, but the classic kind of, like, um, sci-fi is, like, a kind of, perfect situation where everyone's homogenous and technology is at its kind of end point or whatever and then the human some kind of thing fucks up or there's some kind of revolution or there's some kind of change there's not always already like an issue of conflict or whatever like conflict arises out of like nothing or out of like um a new thing that appears like an alien invasion or something the first story i thought was interesting for that which is called tong tong summer by shia jia and it's about the care of elderly people I thought it's really funny. So that, so basically, um, Chong Tong is the a granddaughter, and the grandfather hurts himself and has to end up being cared for. And it seems like this is one of the prototypes of these robots yes. that a company has made. And it gets brought into the house, and it's called Arfu. But then, quite quickly, it's revealed that Arfu isn't a robot. He's not an AI robot. He's a robot that's controlled by a student intern in like a really messy room, wherever in some other city. Who's, who's like called Wang and he's like oh just call me Uncle Wang and there's yeah immediately you're in this like quite weird place which isn't explored that much where like I think there's one point let me the quote I remember which is like of course such a plan had its risks about privacy and security but since technological change was here it was best to face the consequences and guide them to desirable ends so it's like really positive about technology but it also assumes that technology is like really kind of weird and like half run by people and half robotics, half really advanced technology, half about labor costs. The principles of the world that is created in that story are like kind of a bit like, they're not shiny and, and, and plastic. They're the conditions of our world and technology that's created in our world. Because the, the grandfather is a, is a doctor, do you say that? Yeah, that's it. Physician. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At some point, he's, he has this friendship with this uh, other older man and that his friend has an accident or something, and they live quite far away from each other. And then he asks the company to let him operate a robot uh, to kind of take care of his um, friend. And I thought it was really... I just thought it was a really beautiful way um, of thinking about care, but also thinking about agency, that, that mm. suddenly these robots exist. It's like cybernetic grandparents. It's like the <laughs> cybernetic body of the elders, like yeah. that you're using technology, you know, so this... This older man, this old man who's like in bed and now is all fragile, but he still has this um, intellectual life, can be taking care of his friend and then his friend can be taking care of him. And they kind of, it's, I feel like this is a very kind of Donna Harry optimist yes, way of I see what you mean. expanding yeah, yeah. the body. And I keep reading this story. It's such an optimistic story. I keep reading it and being like, oh my God, Uncle Wang's totally going to be a pedophile. Is that well, Yeah, I mean, that's the, Im <laughs> that's the thing that you immediately think is like, oh, I wonder if they're going to explore that element. And they, do and they don't, which I think is just fair enough, isn't it? They didn't take the story in that direction. But yeah, I, it's weird that it's, it kept that, op I mean, that's maybe the feeling that you're, you're talking about. Is that it kept that kind of crazy optimism of sci-fi, not utopian, but like the world could be completely different. But it also like started from like compromised beginnings where like the robots aren't clever enough. 
Because they say things like, oh, there's no way that like the robot would be able to understand the dialect that the grandfather speaks. So like really basic stuff in this story is assumed to just not be good enough. Yeah, and I think, I mean, especially, I think I'm quite interested because there are th- different types of artificial intelligence as well. And I think like, I mean, for sure the general public, but I think even at a more sophisticated level, we, <laughs> not, not that I'm not on that sophisticated yeah. <laughs> level. Other people are on <laughs> a sophisticated yeah, sure. level. But um that these machines are creating these different types of learning and of knowledge that are different from the ones that we have. Even though sometimes, you know, when you talk about like types of artificial intelligence that are trying to imitate the way our brain develops, I would say it's still not the brain. It's still something else. And it's fascinating because they are developing very specific ways of learning that at the moment there's a lot of like, um, research in making artificial intelligence that can understand how other artificial intelligence learn so that they can explain to us how they learn because we know they can learn to do something but we cannot understand how and then you can understand how they're making these decisions and then they start making stupid decisions. Yes. So there's examples when they're like get 90%, 90% I think there's an example about like a medical use where they develop this artificial intelligence and I don't think it was machine learning I think it was one of the other uh, techniques and it, it just improves so much the triage except from asthma patients or something like that and then it, it just ignored all the asthma patients and decided that it was not worth saving them <laughs> <laughs> just like and it has been done I mean it's, it's, it's monitored so like the humans yeah. in the hospital can be like oh this is not okay yeah. and interfere but then there's this puzzlement because this no one can understand how he had come to that decision. Um, because it's not that it's gone completely wrong because it's improved the management of other parts of the emergency. It diminished mortality in general. Yes. Like, still. Because that was the... Uh, it's so interesting. Because comprehension here is like, yeah, oh, I mean, mine is definitely... In, I'm sure you're, you're not a scientist, you're not working with AI. So it's like our ability to understand it is limited. But then even the people who are designing the algorithms or how, how, whatever it is, the, the, the machine learning processes don't necessarily understand it. But I guess that's kind of the point. And that's where I wonder whether, like, the word consciousness is a bit of a slippery thing, isn't it? Because the, as, for me, like, as soon as you design something that learns things in a way that you can't understand, that kind of is consciousness. I think consciousness is like a useless concept okay yeah, yeah i just yeah. think i've been reading i mean not only artificial intelligence but there the other way i was reading i don't know something right about philosophy and nature maybe elizabeth grass i'm not really sure but it was this discussion about how you can even argue that cells have consciousness because cells make all these decisions and they make this decision of otherness for example and they make the decision of like which cells are like them yeah. and which are not and should be attacked. And you should, and and they start describing all these decisions that are made at a cell level through chemical interaction, which is sort of the same way that we make those decisions. And it's like, how can you, you can just, it's really hard to pinpoint the difference between these two. Yes. No, I, I mean, processes. I'm totally with you on, I'm totally with you on that in terms, yeah, to the, because I don't think that it's necessary to, um, delineate a starting point for consciousness because that would you'd have to have a kind of ex nihilo creation point but in terms of like designing it's almost hard to yeah the word consciousness is getting in the way because like 
if our aim is to design things that can replicate certain forms of human behavior, but we're designing machines that are kind of like doing them better, but in a really weird way, I guess I just don't think it's necessary to replicate human ways of doing them. I think you're saying like you're creating these things that are similar but different in a weird way. And I'm like, this is like raising children or something, right? Uh, it's like, yeah, okay, why yeah. would you have this expectation that your child is just a fully human being if it's like you? Yeah. <laughs> why well, Oscar grows up and becomes, and becomes like a Tory and... Uh, <laughs> I, was I don't know, like... all these things that I, I would be like, what? How can your brain yeah. work that way? But that's how children work, right? Because yeah, they yeah. have their own... <laughs> <laughs> and then there's, can I just bring this other story? Just talking about... Um, these things which is um, which one the folding no can I bring a story that is not there oh yeah of course sorry yeah the um, life cycle of software objects which you have read before as well by Ted Chiang and Ted Chiang is a Chinese American writer and he's a computer scientist and he openly writes his stories as um, philosophy uh, from a very interesting point because he's a um, computer scientist I guess which is not people that were used to think about mm. making philosophy or something. And this is a novella. but um, And it's about artificial intelligence. But what I like about this is that he's really focused in the process of care. So he has like this artificial intelligence that are sort of pets. And it's a game and they get adopted by people and people raise them. And it's what happens in the long term in this platform as it changes and like relationships become, get more complicated. And what I really love about that story is that, um, which I think comes from, talking to people that actually work with artificial intelligence is like this idea that care is how you develop beings, like that have consciousness and relationship. That is not, I think a lot of this stuff that is especially written by men, life of this human happens in conceptions, you know? So you have like these two moments. You have the moments when the sperm meets the egg and then you have the moment when you give birth. And like the long-term process of like, you have to raise that child, you have mm. to feed them, you have to like protect them from the world, you talk to them every day, or even like the other bit, which is like when you have a baby in your belly and it's like completely disrupting your body and it's like such an insane process to go through, that part is not the spectacular part, you know, the spectacular part is the one that gets attention, mm. which is these two moments. To me, that kind of related to conscious again, that consciousness and maybe that's the wrong word, I need to find something else, but that, that we attribute conscious or like we negotiate, like there's a relational aspect of recognizing humanness that is can only happen through a process of care and maintenance and long-term relations. That all those things are relational. Yeah. That artificial intelligence is go- has consciousness when we relate to it in a way that recognizes this consciousness. Arguments around how to treat AI in the future is kind of like the wrong way to think about the idea that like at some point they'll become conscious and then we need to deal with like how we treat them as conscious beings is kind of the wrong way around because we should be always thinking about how we're like, yeah, maybe not treating is the wrong word there, but like, yeah, caring for and like being involved in the process of their development as like beings whether that's like whether we see them as having humans forms of consciousness or not and i guess that's the kind of haraway style kinship thing right like you're already entangled with these things and like applying like a hierarchical form of consciousness to like whether they meet your standards of consciousness is kind of point 
besides the point because you're already dealing with them and you're already entangled in a relationship of care with them. So yeah, the Ted Chiang story is really good because it starts off and they're almost like um, Pokemon or whatever, Sony Ibos, you know, the little dogs or something. But people become really like, have these really long-term like loving relationships with them. And then the OS changes or they decide not to de develop the software, update the software anymore. So a small group of owners comes together and has to kind of try and find ways to save their pets right that's yeah, right it's it? amazing because yeah. have like all these ethical dilemmas that kind of appear slowly and at some point someone offers to make them sex workers yeah. <laughs> and then and then the owners are really like i'm really sure how, yeah. um and there's this idea about adults so i think they they i think by the end of the novel they're like maybe like teenagers like they have they're not because they we cannot apply time to them which is really interesting in the yes. same thing they would apply to humans but they have been alive and they have been learning for so long and they kind of like want to be able to make their own decisions and then yeah. these humans are like can i should i protect you and 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 the humans are really aware that these are artificial intelligence beings there's recognition of like how affect or like how emotions guide our decisions. And it's like they have these emotions towards these beings as being alive. Yeah. And it's like, how, why would they not? I, I think it's so much, the more we ex spread aliveness to the world, the better. Like it's better to include more things yeah. in the category of alive. Well, it's almost like, them. yeah, I guess, yeah. Or just like, like chip away at the category of aliveness as this very special place in which like humans occupy the top wrong i guess and also like specific humans yeah <laughs> yeah that's true as well um what about the folding city because that's did uh, so that's the second story in the book that i read and that's by hao jing fang and it's called folding beijing i thought it was called the folding city and yeah that's the one where um beijing literally has three kind of cities within one city space and time is apportioned to them proportionally so i think like five million people live in the first space so they're like the upper class, basically. And they get a whole day and a night. Is that right? Yeah. And then the whole city flips over and second space and third space kind of have like the day and night, respectively. And in each city, more and more people are crammed in and the economy is based on different things. So by the time you get to third space, they're all waste. The biggest business there is like um, recycling and, and, and refuse, isn't it? So why, why did you choose that story out of all of them? I think it's... it's, I think it's... In, in a way, from the outside, it's like the less kind of philosophical parable story, in a sense. But on the other hand, I feel like it's a really metaphor of how society actually is. So, um, and I found that really interesting that the protagonist is on the kind of like this third level of the world. And he's a trash collector. And he's also a single father oh, yeah. who adopted this child. Yeah, and do you only find out chose... that she's in a... She's like an orphan or kind of been, fa she's almost like a foundling, right? At yes. the end, and you find that out that it's not his biological child. Oh, and that's it. He want, he needs money for kindergarten that's really expensive. So you can see how that's exactly okay, yeah, my yeah, sort yeah. of story. Yeah, yeah, I see how that, yeah. <laughs> it's really interesting because, yeah, you have this person and he's the protagonist and he needs money to send this kid that, again, this kinship has been built through a relationship of care instead of like a biological relationship, which I think I'm more and more interested in, in kind of like stories that kind of make that that visible that um but that the story although he's the protagonist the engine is the desire of an upper class citizen who's in love oh yeah it's that second, the guy in second space who met someone in first space who he fancies basically yeah so like the sort of like the class dispute like the romeo and julia thing is happening <laughs> yeah. between these two people because 
those are the type of people that have space to have those sort of feelings and relationships and be, I'm so in love and I'm heartbroken and I want this. And it's like, oh, I cannot be with you because I have to be with this other person. While this other person, because the protagonist, is just like, he doesn't even have, like, literally he doesn't have time for that because yeah. his day <laughs> is like a third or like a fourth of the other uh, people's uh, experience yes, of the, of right. the day. Yeah, and yeah. I thought that was like a really amazing way of like making that clear because that's how we live now. Yes. It's just that the city doesn't fold, but that doesn't make any <laughs> difference. Um, the ending is really funny because it, because he gets back to third space after basically like completing his mission of going to first space and delivering this no, um, and then he kind of has these adventures on the way. But like, yeah, he makes his money and he gets back to third space. And, but it's probably we're kind of we're kind of if you study the economics of the story, essentially he's probably got enough money for like five months of childcare, or you know, like not that long of childcare. And also, when he gets back, he literally just has to go straight back to work because that's how the time operates in that story. Is that by spending his you know the time of the story in these other worlds when he gets back to his world his world is like waking up and he has to go straight back to the refuge center my favorite well, not my favorite but i thought of, in terms of like the difference between reading this kind of sci-fi from from china and and reading other forms of sci-fi there's a bit where they're in first space and they're talking about third space and the guy that the main character meets is talking about why they haven't automated refuse sorting and recycling which is the main economy of third space and he's basically like well we just have to like give people jobs because otherwise in europe they do this thing where they don't give any where they like get rid of jobs but that just didn't work for their economy so we realized basically saying like it's a defense of the planned economy it's quite weird because it's like but you're meant to identify with the protagonist who is like in class terms like part of this underclass of third space but at the same time like within the story there's this like defense of like a managed economy and like keeping people at different levels and stuff. It's quite weird. Yeah, and I think the idea that I think that's also something that is really clear for me in these stories is like there's a really awareness that technology development is a choice. They were always choosing what are the things we're developing technologically and what yeah. things we're not. So I think when we're, yeah. when I was reading the care story, for example, we and then our friend Ross were doing this project around maintenance and I was writing about care labor and I was, I was like, so aware that there's a narrative here when people are always saying, but care labor is the one the robots are not going to take, which I think is really interesting. I think there's a absolutely no real argument on why care labor. You're saying the at the moment people were saying that care is the one thing robots aren't going to take. Yes, here in Europe. That's I think that's like a very specific position, like in Europe and the US. Yeah. Where it's like, and then... In Japan, that seems to be where robotics is like most focused. At the yeah, moment, exactly, exactly. Because but they here, have an elderly, they have one of the biggest aging populations, right? But also because as far, like, I don't know, like I have quite a few Japanese friends and their situation, their families, like family members take care right. of their elders. Well, here is like migrants, people from minorities. <laughs> okay. It's really cheap. They're underpaid. It's like unrecognized labor. We so already it's like, have robots. <laughs> exactly. It's like... <laughs> Why are we going to invest money yeah, okay, in like okay, yeah. in in that? And when I read that, the, yeah, the um, Tong Tong Summer story, I was like, oh yes, like so we have like these other worlds where people are like also aware because if you're someone who has as, as I said with my grandparents, like if you had the experience of having to go through caring for someone, mm. you know how hard it is. Like when you even things like basic experiences of having to give a bath to someone who's an adult who mm. waits like one at a time what you wait or something like that. When you have to do that every now and then, you're like, why wouldn't you automate this? This is like yeah. painful, not only awkward and embarrassing, but physically 
yeah. extremely demanding work. It'd be like impossible, like depending on who of the family is left to care for the elderly members of that family, it could be physically impossible. Yeah, and like it, yeah. it kind of like lives with you with like physical, like thinking about my mom who's like, you know, had to do a lot of this care. Like she, I think there's lots of stuff that she has in pain in her body and legs that we never talk about, but clearly come Not from good. that experience, yeah. from that demands on her body. So, yeah, so whenever like, I don't know, a white 30 year old in Cambridge says, Robots are never like artificial intelligence and robots are not going to be involved in care. I'm like, you'll never care for anyone in your life, right? Yeah, that's okay, that's yeah. the whole point. So, um, do you think, in terms of like effective knowledge or like history is kind of affecting our ideas about technologies, then it's basically what we've experienced as hard work is the is the hard work that we want to automate. But also, but also the people that have is in academia, in development in academia, right? Yeah. So you will like yeah, work yeah, yeah. because. Say Britain used to have social mobility, so you will come from like a working class where you have experience. You have seen your your dad coming from the factory, and you know there's lots of theorization. So you maybe you read Marx, and then you're like, oh, these are the sort of labor that we should. Where like oppression happens. Yes, right? you're like, okay, yeah, yeah, and yeah, reproductive labor, emotional labor, care labor have are not the sort of labor that have been theorized as the oppressed labor. Like we've yeah. been fighting for it to be accepted as oppressive type of labor for. Well, time, first but... to be accepted as labour at all, <laughs> yeah. and to recognise that it's like not a very well-run uh, labour market, I guess. To me, these texts were exciting because they're all, I think all the three of them were texts that when I read, it sort of like expanded my framework a little bit. And I'm like, oh, I had this blind spot where I'm just accepting that this is the only way, that this is just the natural way of thinking about technology. Yeah. This is just yeah, how it yeah. is. And then I was like, oh, no, other, yeah, there's this other... And you don't have to like essentialize the fiction as like, examples of Chinese sci-fi to just realise that they're coming from a very different place. It's weird, isn't it? Because it's like, on the second reading, I enjoyed them a lot more because I wasn't worried so much about enjoying them. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. Like, I don't, because like I'm a total snob, which is just fine. The sort of, like, literature I like is very, like, literary. It's quite self-aware. And this isn't that. This is, like, sci-fi. It's using ideas as its kind of raw material rather than... And speculation as its raw material rather than, like... You have to be in a kind of certain headspace to, yeah, get get something out of it, I think. I was talking to Oscar, my son, who's just here before we were on our way about short stories, and he was saying he doesn't like short stories. And he's reading not... Mm. He's reading The Hobbit. And I was thinking, it is... I have that with short stories as well. That I just have specific moments in my life where I read short stories. And most of the time, I'm a novel type of person. And mm. there's something specific about that structure. Like, it demands all of this space and this different way. I have to, like, completely change the way I interact with the text to be able to enjoy it or something. Yeah. And it's almost like with novels, like, setting up of the world, whether that's, like, a world that relate is very close to our own or not, is, like, part of the fun. Whereas with short stories, it's like, okay, here's the world. And now here's a very small thing that happens within it. Okay, now we're done. Yeah. And your your part of it is like quite big right at the start where you have to accept the world and kind of invent some extra rules that like make it coherent for you or whatever. Because the the writing's not going to do that. It's almost, I guess it's easier to read novels in a way, right? Like they do the yeah. work for you. The writer has to do the work for you and they're expected to. I like I like that. that yeah, they're quite demanding. Because I was, um, I mean, we're talking um, about reading the... Life Cycle of Software Objects by Ted Chiang. And I had just read this other book that we're going to talk about um, in the next podcast, which is uh, The Idiot by Elif Batman. And, and she studied creative, um, I don't know if creative writer, literature. 
Russian literature or Harvard, and then she writes for The New Yorker. And I really love her writing. And she's someone who takes like lots of pleasure in erudition and texture. And it's just... Um, and then I went from that to uh, Ted Chiang. And I was like, <laughs> there's like, for example, from going from A to B, there is one verb in that book, which is walk. People yeah. just walk. <laughs> yeah, you said that. I remember you saying that. It was really funny. And it was so delicious to read that. Like, it was like, and I think if I, if I had read that book just after reading that, I wouldn't be like, I cannot do this anymore. Like, I, I, I would be really missing yeah. this other way of text. But then yeah, okay. having the, like, it was like having a sorbet or something after having like a really fatty meal. It was just uh, amazing. There's like... Thanks so much for listening. That was me and Andrea Frankie talking about uh, Invisible Planets, um, Chinese sci-fi. Next time we'll be talking about The Idiot by the American writer Elif Bautman. So join us for that. All right. See ya. See ya.